1: Hey, I'm Jeff Cohen. Everything you hear on WNPR, from local news and talk shows to the national programs you love, is made possible because of listener support. You make it happen. You give the radio its signal, the computer its stream, the smartphone its podcast. You make it so we can reach you wherever you are. We love that you listen, but we also need your dollars. Go to WNPR.org and click on Donate in the upper right-hand corner. Thanks for helping out.
0: Let's see. It says... If the office furniture has a prescribed life of five to seven years, you must use the modified accelerated cost recovery schedule on table 534T. Ah, Melanzani.
2: What's the matter, Mr. Capone?
0: I'm trying to do my taxes, but they make the Asset Life Cycle Management section
2: of Schedule SE so complicated, I feel like a figato. Why are you using Schedule SE, Mr. Capone? Just use Schedule E in Form 6198 to figure out your allowable loss from passive activities.
0: Because, you panamantata, I'm depreciating certain real estate assets to offset non-real estate losses, which is permissible for the first time this year under Section
2: 431. Mr. Capone, you you are the capo de party, and I am a low-level soldier and button man, so please forgive my presumableness when I tell you you have failed to calculate the 3.8% net investment income tax on the amount over threshold for modified adjusted gross income.
0: Lampone e pompelno, These stoonards make it too hard. Forget about it.
2: Also, you can't claim the Tommy guns as farm equipment.
0: You know what? I'm just not going to pay my taxes. Let those fagiolinis come after me.
2: But, Mr. Capone, you always say paying taxes is our patriotic duty to keep this great country what it is.
0: That's what I used to think, Patti. But now I just don't know what to believe. I'm not going to file.
2: Forget about it. What's the worst that could happen?
0: Penalty charges, I assume, but that's going to keep me up nights
2: mr capone i just had maybe an idea about how you could claim nine hundred million dollars in losses and never pay taxes for twenty years let me show you how while these people talk about you and now he told don corleone he could deduct all of the horse except for the head Colin McEnroe.
1: So it turns out that Al Capone wanted to pay his taxes, but it was just too hard to do it. See, that's that's part of the legend I didn't know. Alright, we're going to talk about gangsters today. And uh, towards the end of the show, you're going to meet Louis Ferrante, a rather remarkable uh, gangster, somebody who was a mafia insider, spent quite a bit of time in prison where he discovered, among other things, Judaism, converted, uh, wrote Torah commentaries. <laughs> I'm not making any of this up, by the way. Uh, wrote Torah commentaries. You'll Anyway, you'll meet him. It's an unusual story. Uh, but he was an insider in the Gambino family. Now he writes Torah commentaries. Uh, But first, we do want to talk about uh, Al Capone. We are so fortunate to have really one of the most acclaimed biographers of this generation, Deirdre Baer, uh, famously the biographer of Simone de Beauvoir, Anais Nin, Carl Jung, Saul Steinberg, and probably most notably Samuel Beckett, for which he won a National Book Award. Her latest biography is Al Capone, His Life, Legacy, and Legend. She's joining us from the NPR studios in New York. Deirdre Baer, welcome to our show. Thank you. Uh, maybe the way to begin is just so I just read a list of people who were part of the intellectual life of Western civilization, whom you have chronicled in the past. Al Capone was not. He kind of is the outlier on this list. Uh, if I had made it, tried to make a guess about whom Deirdre Bear would be tackling next, Al Capone probably wouldn't be very high on my list of guesses. So why Al Capone?
3: Yeah, he wasn't very high on my list either. I really hadn't thought about him because, you know, I'm a so-called literary biographer and all of a sudden a criminal um, enters uh, my kin and I'm absolutely fascinated. The way the book began was when a young man uh, whose name was Capone uh, grew up hearing a legend in his family that his father, or one his grandfather, sorry, or one of his grandfather's brothers, uh, could have been the illegitimate son of Al Capone, and he wanted to know uh, who am I? Am I related to Al Capone at all? So um, he, um, I had some friends in publishing who he had contacted, and they said to me, uh, "What should he do? Should he hire a private detective, or should he get a ghostwriter?" And I said, I'd really need to talk to him and to his family. And so uh, that led uh, to a kind of conference call uh, with that particular branch of the Capone family. And one thing led to another. And the next thing I knew, I was calling my agent and my publisher and saying, I absolutely have to write about Al Capone. And I do remember the shocked expression on both faces when they looked at me and they said, what, (laughs) you, Al Capone? So that's how it started.
1: As you point out in your biography, there were like 100 books or so about Al Capone. And yet uh, you, maybe because you're a literary biographer, maybe because you're you, you did feel as though there were corners and avenues to be explored. What, What do you think was different about your approach or what insights do you feel are uniquely yours?
3: Well... All the books cover the same material, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, the murder of uh, a newspaper reporter, Jake Lingle, uh, how he uh, took over the so-called pineapple uh, primary, which was uh, when they all threw bombs uh, to make sure the election went their way in the 1920s. And these were all public events, and everybody who wrote about them had a different take and uh, basically, the information was the same, and the interpretations were all different. And it was—it seemed to me very tired, very overwritten. And um, I was interested in in the man. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we we know uh, this fellow that all the newspapers wrote about, but we didn't really know anything about the man. So, as I said, uh, having met some Capones. Uh, Others phoned me and introduced themselves, and one thing led to another, and uh, I found that I was collecting the testimonies of uh, family members who had been uh, in Al's presence either in Chicago or in Miami where he had a house, uh, commonly known in the family as the Palm Island house. And when I heard their stories, uh, uh, an incredibly complex individual Um, came into my mind, and I thought, what I really need to do is to uh, find out what the man, Al Capone, was doing privately when all of this public activity was happening. So that was really how I began.
1: You know, the man who emerges is really complicated. Uh, I mean, as you say, we're very familiar with the, the violent part about this uh, and, and also really kind of the accumulation of power. This is a, a tremendously powerful man uh, for the incredibly brief reign. I hadn't realized till I read your book that really, we're talking about six years here uh, in which he ruled the roost. But there's all this underlying stuff. And, you know, my first hint of this in your book, and I'm wondering what you think about this, my first hint of this in your book is this notion that as a young man, he was a rather gifted dancer, was apparently rather light on his feet and good at dancing, and that some of the earliest dancing that he did, which as was traditional for a young Italian American man of his time, would have been in these clubs where men danced with men, Now, that's an image of Al Capone that doesn't readily spring to mind when you say that name.
3: Yes. In the early years around the turn of the century, his family uh, came around the turn of the century. And Al was born actually in Brooklyn in 1899 um, into um, a very poverty-stricken environment uh, it was the street that led up to the Brooklyn Navy Yard, and he was, he was eight years old. He was always big for his age, big and husky, and, uh, and still very light on his feet, a very graceful dancer, as you said. Um, so he became, at eight, a kind of a mascot of um, a group called the Navy Street Gang, uh, who hassled sailors when they came out of the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And by the time he was 12, he was uh, a street punk. And by the time he was 18, he was a Brooklyn hood working for a gangster called Johnny Torrio, uh, who was Al's mentor, uh, if you will. So uh, he came early to the world of gangland. And to, to, to explain this, you almost have to, uh, as I did, you, you have to study the Italian-American experience in the United States. Um, they lived in these cramped tenements uh, and women like Al's mother uh, never left the apartment except to go food shopping. And when they, when they went out on the street from their uh, um, apartment buildings, they would say they were going down to America, mm-hmm. uh, which is a tremendous expression, I think. That's how they thought of themselves. And uh, the city uh, of New York, um, New York City officials are quoted uh, as having said, uh, we have to bring in the Italians because the Irish aren't going to do our dirty work anymore. So uh, such a life. Uh, Jacob Rees, the, the wonderful sociologist who wrote How the Other Half Lives, he said, uh, the Italians are by nature a very clean, very honest people. It's the environment that makes them what they are. And so so this was Al. This was, this was the world that he knew, which uh, kind of explains how he went into a life of crime, but at the same time doesn't excuse him, for there were so many other Italian-Americans who did not choose a life of crime and who nevertheless had successful, prosperous experiences. But we, we have to take into account that Brooklyn world. And then, of course, uh, to answer your question about the dancing... Mm nice Italian girls did not leave their house and go to public places because they had to get married they had to be, become the matriarchs of families so the men danced with each other
1: <laughs> well and there's a way in which and I'm not suggesting anything about his sexuality at all this is this incredibly macho guy and, and a guy who was no stranger to violence and domination but there's a way in which one thing that emerges throughout this book is a softer side anyway, an almost feminine side. And, you know, I mean, he's... You describe his his wardrobe as something that was rather carefully curated, a, a bit of a popinjay, jay, you know, and, and a guy who really loved uh, opera and the arts, loved opera well enough to be able to discuss it with some discernment. You know how one singer approached uh, the same role that another singer uh, had attempted um, and a guy who at least kind of also cultivated this soft image of a man who would you know, buy all of the newspapers uh, that some poor, starving newsboy had and give him enough money and for to last him a week or two and tell him to go home, you know, to his mother and go to school the next day. There's, as incredibly violent and scary as this guy was, there was like this whole other side of it. Some, some of it probably stagecraft, but some of it also apparently who he is, you know, a man who would cry at opera.
3: Exactly. Uh, You know, I I describe Al Capone as uh, the inventor of spin. Uh, Before that became a word in our uh, general public discourse today, he knew how to manipulate the press. Um, His wardrobe, as you say, was carefully chosen. Uh, He was written about in the newspapers for his clothes uh, in the way that women (laughs) have traditionally been written about. You know, his bilious banana yellow suit Or uh, once he wore a suit that was in a shade of purple, uh, commonly known as aubergine, and the newspapers fell all over themselves to explain what this color was for their readers. Uh, He wore a diamond pinky ring, depending on who's describing it. It was either anything from 4 to 11 carats. Uh, He always wore his white fedora. Uh, his suits were custom-made with an extra-strong pocket to hold his guns. Uh, so th- this, this was the, the public image that Al presented of himself. He had reporters on his payroll. He had uh, an editor of a major Chicago newspaper on his payroll, um, and it was quid pro quo. Uh, in exchange for positive stories written about him, he would supply tips to this editor. Uh, at one point, he, tr- he tried to hire a man whose name was Ivy Lee, who was one of the first public relations geniuses. And Ivy Lee had turned around um, John D. Rockefeller's reputation, Charles Lindbergh's reputation when he was a so-called Nazi sympathizer. And so Al tried to hire this man who was commonly known as Poison Ivy Lee, And of course, (laughs) Ivy Lee turned him down. He couldn't risk uh, taking on a client like uh, Al Capone when normally he worked with uh, Bethlehem Steel and people like that. Uh, So Al knew what kind of a public persona he wanted to present. And in private, he was a family man. He adored his wife, even though he had many mistresses. He loved his son. Um, He passed on the love um, to the wife and son to the granddaughters, the four granddaughters. So talking to these granddaughters, we came to the conclusion we would use words like enigma, conundrum, riddle. And at the end of the book, although I presented so many different facets of this man's personality, we, the granddaughters and I, and some other family members, we agree that uh, there's a lot more that needs to be investigated about Al Capone. Um, he really was enigma, conundrum.
1: We're talking to Deirdre Bear right now. Her new book is Capone: His Life, Legacy, and Legend. Uh, we'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll talk a little bit more about why this guy continues to fascinate us. <laughs> we're talking to Deirdre Baer. Uh, she is the author of a new biography of Al Capone. She's famous, of course, for other biographies of Samuel Beckett and Jung, uh, people like that, uh, Simone de Beauvoir. So this is a bit of a departure. So Deirdre Bear, you know, one of the things that uh, was surprising to me, as I said, uh, about your book is that the Capone rise in period of domination spans only six years. He's about 25 when he gets started there and about 32 when he's done. Now, granted, during that time, he amasses this incredible uh, personal wealth. He's worth about a half a billion dollars by today's standards you know, or in today's money. Uh, he's presiding over this incredibly complex and finely tooled organization called the Chicago Outfit that's been studied by the Harvard Business School. But all the same, six years, I mean, there are other racketeers who, who didn't flame out so fast. Why, why, why are there hundreds of books and movies and television representations of Capone? And, I mean, Johnny Torrio, who was the mentor to Al Capone, I mean, most people don't even know that name.
3: Yes, exactly. Johnny Torrio deserves his own biography, but I'm not going to write it. Somebody else can have that one. But, uh, you know, that was the most surprising thing to me when I started to write about Al Capone. Um, he was 25 years old when he took over the, the Chicago outfit, which was already a very large, um, what should we call it, consortium, if you will. And uh, by the time he was 30, 31, he was on his way to prison. So the rain at the top of the world, the criminal world, was so brief. And yet here we are, 79-plus years after his death. He died in 1947. And the legend just grows and grows. I I have a chapter in the book where I compiled uh, a list of all the legends about him. And as you said, who knew the Harvard Business School would make a case study of how Al Capone ran the outfit, or that today's Bulgarian mafia brags about how they patterned themselves after Al Capone. And um, in the 1960s in England, there were very famous criminals known as the Cray Brothers, mm-hmm. and they would say, well, we behave like that high-class criminal, Al Capone. So, mm-hmm. I mean, just all the things I found out about uh, uh, people who patterned themselves after him or who studied him, um, even today there are documentaries, there are mockumentaries, there's a week-long festival in Iceland dedicated to Al Capone, where people dress up like Al and parade around and do things that they think uh, gangsters did. And uh, there are at least a hundred books written about him. We nobody has really made an accurate count. Uh, all the movies, the Scarface movies, uh, the television documentaries. Um, he he just the legend just grows and grows and. Uh, Vince Gilligan, uh, the television writer, said something that struck me. He said um, he, he was comparing Al Capone to the movie The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance with that wonderful line. Uh, When the legend eclipses the man, you go with the legend.
1: Mm -hmm. There's so many things in the book that jumped out at me. But one uh, was a a remark made, I think, by one of the IRS agents who eventually did get him. But one of the things he said, his name was Madden, uh, he says he is one mobster who doesn't care about money. He wants to be the big guy. And if he can take the bows, he doesn't care much who gets the cash, just so long as he can bet on horses, buy the horrible junk he calls clothes, and collect jewelry. He likes women, but he is sensitive about that source of income. So, and this kind of rings true, and it reminds me of other people, including a person who's running for president right now, that it doesn't seem to be so much about the money as some other kind of rush that has to do with being a big shot.
3: Yes. And, you know, you mentioned the contemporary political climate. Uh, I get a daily Google alert uh, every time Al Capone's name is mentioned. And I have to say uh, it's equal opportunity for taking his name in vain on both sides. Uh, Donald Trump is known as Al Capone on steroids And uh, Hillary is known as Al Capone in a pantsuit. And uh, (laughs) the, uh, uh, you know, uh, Donald Trump's tax business, of course, the immediate uh, analogy is Al Capone. And Hillary's emails, uh, did uh, the outfit have any books that they hid from the general public? Of course they did. Uh, So it just goes on and on. Um, It's so easy to take Al Capone's name in vain. And, you know, I, I... credit him with being the creator of Spin. Uh, he constructed a public persona. He deliberately did this. And yet at home, um, he he just, as you say, he was a, a cultured man who listened to opera, who read books, who taught himself to play the mandolin. Uh, he actually wrote some songs. Uh, so, again, so many facets to this personality. But... Um, yeah, the the rush, I think, uh, was about money in the sense that it allowed him to give so much to his family. Remember, he was supporting seven people after his father died. His father died uh, when Al was around 20, and— um, Al became responsible for his uh, widowed mother, his younger sister, his three younger brothers. He had to help his two older brothers. He had his own wife and child. Uh, so money was important uh, to keep all of those people happy and comfortable. Uh, and it was important to be able to throw it around, uh, you know, to distribute $100 bills or silver dollars or all the things that he really did do. Uh, and yet here's here's an interesting twist when the Depression started, Al Capone set up a soup kitchen, mm-hmm. and he fed two to 3,000 people every day, a full hot meal. Well, the general thought about that is that he intimidated businesses into providing the food <laughs> or else to run the soup kitchen. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, um, both sides to a lot of stories.
1: Dear DeBeer, one of the things you're clearly uh, interested in is uh, Capone's relationship with the women in his life. You mentioned his wife, May, whom he seemed to have genuine genuine love and respect for. This did not preclude giving her syphilis, but um, uh, the other women really are his mother and his sister. And women, although Capone has a very utilitarian uh, attitude towards uh, other women out there in the world, women are very important to Capone.
3: Very important. Uh, As I said, he adored his wife. He married up. uh, May Capone, her full name was Mary Josephine Coughlin. She was Irish, and she was lace curtain Irish. Uh, Her family owned their own home, whereas the Capones lived in this squalid, fetid tenement uh, apartment. Um, And uh, May, uh, as she was always known, she was two years older than Al. And um, the... She wanted to marry him. He wanted to marry her. They were deeply in love, and she was pregnant, and her mother set up all sorts of obstacles. Uh, It was a very difficult pregnancy, and indeed the child was born several months early. Um, And I think, and, and the family agrees, that Mrs. Coughlin did not want May to marry an Italian, so she hoped that the pregnancy would result in a miscarriage and then there d- there would be no need for a wedding. So actually, the child was born early in December, and May and Al were married three weeks later on December 31st. He loved her, uh, but yet he had all these other women, and he ran brothels and bordellos. And yet, if anybody said that he made money on the backs of women he would become violently angry. He didn't He didn't want anyone to know that his income came from that. He preferred that they believed that his income only came from prohibition and gambling, but it also came from women. And yet, in his personal relationships with women, he was very kind and very generous. Uh, there, many of the prostitutes, uh, not many, a few prostitutes, uh, I had uh, documentation to show that when they, something happened in the life, um, that they needed to leave the life. He'd set them up. He'd uh, give them money, uh, send them on their way. In one case, he even found a husband for one of them. So very interesting relationship with women.
1: We have a, a minute or so left before the the next break, Deirdre Baer. It does seem, well, first of all, I wanted to say, you've kind of alluded to this, but you sort of wound up kind of reuniting threads of Al Capone's family. There are people who have living memories that touch living memories of Al Capone. Um, You managed to get a lot of people talking.
3: Well, here's the thing. Four of his brothers changed their name. Even during his lifetime, they, they changed their name from Capone to various other uh, names where they wouldn't be recognized. And so their children and their children's children grew up with these other names. And they were, um, I'll use the expression, so deeply closeted, they didn't want anyone to know that they were related to Al Capone. So that uh, I joke, but it's true I'm responsible for any number of family reunions because uh, take the cousins who live on the West Coast who didn't know that cousins in the Midwest existed or the family still in Chicago uh, didn't know about any of these other people. And uh, so I would say to them, well, would you like me to give your contact information to (laughs) your other cousins? And that's how they met each other for the first time. As a matter of fact, just this week, Uh, Two of them, a Chicago cousin and a California cousin, met for the first time in my presence, and Mm -hmm. it was it was really remarkable to see it.
1: Dear Debeare, what a book! What a story! What a bunch of stories! Yeah, we didn't even get to the brother who went out west and became a sheriff. There's so many more stories to tell here. We're going to take a little break, but thank you so so much for telling us these stories. And this book really is fabulously readable as well so we're going to take this break nice people are going to ask you to support this radio show if you like the kind of show that would talk about al capone with deirdre bear and also talk to a mobster who converted to judaism which is what we're going to do next then now's the time to pledge and let people know you like a show like this one you're glad it exists
2: Today's show was produced by Betsy Big Toothbrush Kaplan and me, Kayon 20 Onions Wolf. Greg Whack Whack Hill appeared in the intro, and our interns are Rusty, Rusty the Tuna Fisher, and William, Billy the Catfisher. The part of Bill Curry was played by Tony, Tony Avocado, Avocado. Never miss an episode. Subscribe to the Colin McEnroe Show on iTunes. And now, back to Colin.
1: All right. We told you some remarkable stories about Al Capone, but we are in no way done. We are about to meet Louis Ferrante, author of several books, including Unlocked, The Life and Crimes of a Mafia, Insider and Mob Rules, What the Mafia Can Teach Legitimate Businessmen. Uh, Lou is the host of the series Inside the Gangster's Code for the Discovery Channel. First of all, welcome to our conversation, Louis Ferrante.
4: Hey, Colin, how are
1: you? Well, Thanks for having me on. Oh, well, very happy to have you on. So this is a remarkable story, a story of a guy who, well, to quote from subtitles of your books, uh, was a mafia insider. Uh, you went to prison. Uh, you became two things, one of them, the kind of bookworm who plows through Thomas Hardy, Victor Hugo, Dumas, Flaubert, the Bronte sisters, uh, and also um, uh, a convert to Judaism. Uh, this is an incredible story, but let's start with the let's start at the start at, at the beginning, though, you were a bad guy. You were a wise guy. Uh, I mean, give us a sense of like a, a typical caper or a typical adventure that you might have back in those days, the kinds of things that you do tell us in Unlocked.
4: Yeah, so there's, there's a lot of funny stories. I, you know, I mean, Yuma, looking back, they're not funny when it happened. They're tragic events. But uh, looking back, we, we, I was a hijacker. My crew, we did a lot of hijackings and heists for, for the mob, for the Gambino family. We made a lot of money, and sometimes, you know, they're comical. These 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 things. We had a tip one time. I talk about it in, in Unlocked. Uh, there's little vignettes throughout the book of of different capers and stuff. Stuff I was charged with or investigated for by the FBI. And one of them was we got a tip on a truckload of Victoria's Secrets uh, lingerie. Figure out, wow, you know, you know when you go buy your wife or your girlfriend one of those, it's a lot of money. So you got to figure, what's an 18-wheeler of it worth? You know, maybe a half a million dollars. And uh, and turns out that that's what it was, or more. And we got excited. We we took down the truck, and uh, hijacked it, and we got it back to the warehouse. And I jumped up on the back, opened up the back gate, uh, took a box, cut it open, and I took out this big giant brazier that my grandmother Josie used to wear on the porch in the hot summer months when she'd drink iced coffee because she thought it was like a bikini. And I'd say, you know, Nana. Do me a favor and go put some clothes on. You know, you're embarrassing me. And she's ah, it's the same as what they wear on the beach. But anyway, I'm stuck with about a, a quarter of a million of, of these uh, things that look like slingshots. And now I'm in the mob, and i got to sell them. So I went to a couple of my fences and said, uh, you know, hey, i got all these Brazier's And I like, what the hell you want me to do with those? <laughs> so, you know, it was kind of comical. And when we got arrested for it, uh, I couldn't help. You know, there's like eight of us in the courtroom, me and my co-defendants. And uh, the, the courtroom, rather, couldn't help but you know launch into laughter about you know the, the the different stupid stuff we got involved in you know throughout our day. But that's uh, but it is serious, and and I did go to jail a long time. That's just a comical uh event that happened. But in the midst of that, people do get hurt. We traumatize people, uh, and yeah, it was the mob. It, it is what it is. The mob is the mob, and I went to prison for a long time because of it.
1: One impression I got from the book, I mean, you were a stand-up guy. Uh, One of the reasons you went up in prison is you wouldn't tell anybody anything. But, you know, an awful lot of people's downfalls really do come from somebody else singing, as they say. I mean, you know, we hear a lot about Omerta and codes of silence and stuff, but a lot of people get ratted out, it seems.
4: Yeah, more so nowadays than it was a long time ago. When I first got involved with the mob, I was a kid, 17, 18, I started hijacking trucks uh, 1920. I had my own crew. Uh, I had a run. I went to jail when I was 25, and uh, and I faced a lifetime in prison at that time. And before that happened, though, before I went, before I got arrested, the underboss in our family, who was Sammy the Bull Gravano, who ratted on John Gotti, he became a snitch. And when he did, it was unheard of that someone of such high rank would 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 squeal. Mm-hmm. You know, would be afraid of going to jail. You know, we we were supposed to be tough guys. We're not afraid of prison. And I wasn't afraid of prison. I did eight and a half years and faced life in prison. The only reason I got out in eight and a half years is, first of all, I hired great attorneys. I had Barry Slotnick, William Kuntzler, the late William Kuntzler, the civil rights attorney. Uh, I had great attorneys in my corner. I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on them to defend me. Uh, but the other thing is I reversed one of my cases from prison, so I got out. But I still did eight and a half years in the penitentiary, and that was just part of you know, your career choice you understood that you might have to go to jail. Just like if you join the Army and you, your, your intent is to go to West Point and become an officer, you still know that you might get caught on a battlefield. So we understood that. It was shocking to me when the underboss of the family went sour. And at first I didn't believe it. It was too hard to believe that, that one of us would, would sing. And uh, it turned out to be true. And then shortly thereafter, a lot of other gangsters felt like they had a green light to do the same. You know it was a pass sort of like, well, if he did it, why can't I? I'm not as big as him, and uh nobody wants to go to jail anymore and and you know that's that signals the end of the mob now, I'm not criminally minded anymore i I think the right way, my brain is 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 functioning properly, my head's screwed on right, so I see all the things that are wrong with the mob, but when you're in that life, it's hard to believe that your your dear friend, someone you have dinner with, someone who eats in your house, you eat in his house could sit on a witness stand and point at you and put you in jail for the rest of your life to save his own skin. That's kind of hard to believe. And it was, for me, hard to believe then, but it happens more and more nowadays. And that, I think, is, is the uh, the, death, the death knoll for the mob. That's it. It's over.
1: Um, you know, you talk about uh, getting out after eight and a half years. There's a story in the book that's one of my favorites. By the time that you are eligible for this parole, uh, you have changed quite a bit. And among other things, you're walking around prison in, uh, with a yarmulke on your head and glasses. And there are people in the prison who mistake that for a sign that you are getting soft. And, and there's also a sense that when people are eligible for parole, they're also maybe a little bit soft. And, and one of the things you're quite explicit about in this book is the, the fear and, and the constant threat of rape while you are in prison. And there's a guy, I think his name, I think his name is Jupiter. He's known as Jupiter, who you're pretty sure wants to rape you and who, between the yarmulke, the glasses, and the news that you're going to be paroled pretty soon, also thinks maybe he's got an opening, so to speak, to rape you. Explain what you did about this.
4: Yeah, so just for a little background, when I started reading history and philosophy, I fell in love with books. I never read a book before in my life. I was literate. I did go to high school. I graduated high school because my mother asked me to, but college, that was it. I'm not going to college. I I, I was already active on the streets, and... My career was on the streets at that point. So, And then my mother died, which made things all the more worse. But anyway, I do eventually pick up books in prison, fall in love with reading. And then through through learning and education, I realize that there is a higher power. I believe there is a God, some type of higher power that, that has made the universe and, and, and has a hand in it. And it's just too, too amazing for me when you even read science. It's sort of like an Einsteinian view of god maybe that you know that the universe has to be there must be a, a, a great intelligence behind it so i studied all the religions and and chose judaism i thought was the one that was right for me uh, out of them three monotheistic religions christianity islam and judaism they may all be right i don't want to tell anybody their religion is wrong but i cut to the quick the jews you know were the first ones to to realize that there's one god this monothe this, this theory or idea of monotheism came from the jews in the desert and I don't think God makes mistakes. The, the universe is too perfect. So the fact that He picked the Jews to me was was interesting. And I and I latched onto the Torah. So now I'm taken for a little bit of a softy. I'm walking around, you know, prison, and uh, you know, I dive in, in the morning. And you know, well, who's this Italian guy who wants to be a Jew? He must have lost his mind. And you know, that maybe the Italians aren't going to stick up for him anymore. And there aren't too many Jews in jail, so he's got no juice or backup. So I get into little things with people who thought maybe I'd become soft. Uh, or they'd see me walking around with a Torah under my arm. And at the time, before I had LASIK surgery, I had glasses on. So they see me walking around with glasses on, a Torah under my arm, maybe a kipper on Friday night. And maybe they think that I came from a softer background. Maybe I was an educated Jewish boy who, you know, got his bar mitzvah and then went to Yale. And, you know, I made a mistake somewhere along the line, and now I'm in jail with them. And, you know, I'm terrified. And I would throw down my books, toss the glasses down, and and slap the kipper down. And say, I will kill you, you know, if you even think that, you know, I mean, it would go that that whole thing would change so fast and they would know. And I'd say I found God in jail and I found education in jail. I'm from the same place you're from, but worse. Don't try me. And that would be the end of it. You know, I would go on. But there was this one case where uh, the Jupiter guy, uh, and I gave him a different name. He had a different name in real life. I changed names in the book so that I would hide people's identities. But uh, I remember him clear as day. I could see him in my mind right now. Uh, he took a shot at me. Uh, people put up the parole list, which is a dangerous thing to do, to allow other convicts to know who made parole. Because when, you, when it's time to go home, you don't want uh, a fight, a knife fight, an assault. Uh, or maybe you, your own death to interrupt with your exit. You know, you just don't want anything to happen to you and get in the way of the, the potential of having freedom so close. So other inmates see that, and they know that they could shake you down or rape you or take a shot at you. And the parole list went up, and my name was on it, and I knew I was in a dangerous place, and I knew that you know, something was going to happen at some point And somebody tried me, and uh, he, he grandstanded. He was a big guy. And he told me, "Get me the f- I want the phone at eight o'clock. Get me the phone." I had just hung up the phone, and I said, "Get the phone. You get the effing phone yourself. You know who you talking to." And then he grandstanded and wanted to make a, you know a big star and stuff. So I sat quietly. I went back to my cell, and uh, and I said, "Let me figure out how to put him in his place." and make sure everybody knows so that I could leave here in one piece. And, you know, a couple of times this happened, and I, I tell you, I'm not, I'm not going to lie to you, I thank God, but I caught him in the bathroom. It was a, uh, There was a bathroom that was sort of like a communal bathroom near the television room, and I caught him in there, and I read him the riot act, and I, you know, I put him in his place, and I told him what I'd do to him and what I'd cut off of him and make him eat if he thought he was going to try me before I'd leave, and I told him that if I'd ever leave, I don't care, which I did, I wanted to leave. And I'm telling you, I walked out of that bathroom, and I I I put the fear of God into him. And I walked out of that bathroom, and I said, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, because I was thank, I was thanking God, and that's you know the Jewish the Jewish version of thank you God. I was thanking God for sparing me, and and helping me out in that situation. Because as much as I made him believe that I would have taken it to the end, I of course didn't want to. I wanted to get out of there. Yeah. But anyway, so that's so that's sort of like the whole 180. I mean, you know, I went I went in there. I had no belief in God, no understanding of any, any type. I never read a book before in my life, cover to cover. As I said, I was literate, but never read a book. Um, and, and by the time I was leaving, you know, I was, in a, I, I, was a, I, guess, I guess what you could call a self-educated, well-educated Jew. And, uh, and I was proud to, to hit the streets again with, with a new outlook and understanding of life. And I've lived accordingly since I got home.
1: Louis Ferrante, thank you so much for joining us today.
4: Thank you, Colin. Thank you.
1: All right, so this has been an interesting show, and at least I hope that you found it interesting. Um, One of the things that I'd hoped to have time to get to with Lewis is, in fact, similar to the Harvard Business School studying Al Capone. He's actually written a book about things that business can learn from the mafia, and some of them are the same lessons that some of the gangsters in the Al Capone book seemed also to know. So anyway, if you like shows like this one where maybe— We show you a different side of a subject that you thought you knew something about. Uh, If you like that kind of thing, maybe when the people come on here in just a few seconds uh, and ask you to support public radio and WNPR in particular, maybe you'll make a pledge now. Because if you make a pledge now, it really does go down. Uh, It's entered into our record by the recording angels of Pledge Drive. So it's a good thing. So please, uh, if you like what we do, uh, now's the time to show it.
2: Uh,
0: I'm bored. Amuse me.
2: Okay, Mr. Capone, um, what do you get when you cross Al Capone with Al Pacino? What? A cappuccino. Uh,
0: Who the hell is Al
4: Pacino?